Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that would get straight to the point, but to keep in line with the current batch of politicians, instead circles the point for a while, then pretends to go for it but runs in the opposite direction before blaming someone else for the mess and eventually missing it completely. This is episode 157, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and as the Labour Conference 2019 shows, they really are the party for the people, in that most people right now are very confused and massively divided, with very little idea what to do about it. But it's okay, because the whole conference voted to uphold the National Executive Committee's stance on Brexit, which is that Labour promised to have a second referendum within six months if they win a general election, after which they'll have a one-day conference to decide which way to campaign. And look, I think that'll be great as it'll be a lovely historical reenactment get-together distraction from the horrors of the No Deal that will have passed eight months earlier. It's a victory for Labour leader and face drawn on a nutmeg husk Jeremy Corbyn as conference votes show the entire party back being vague about Brexit. Depending on which way, you know, the wind is blowing, the alignment of the stars and exactly how many weeks it's been since Shadow Secretary of State and most available pophead toy Barry Gardner appears on TV to say the party's stance is something it never has been. So now Labour are definitely pushing for a general election, even though they've just blocked one. So instead, they'll wait until after an Article 50 extension, which isn't definite, is passed, and then hopefully have a general election afterwards. And if they win, which according to a leader who's openly said being PM is a daunting prospect, and polls who suggest the public think the same, they'll negotiate a new deal that they may not be able to do, and then have a referendum where they'll back something they decide on in a conference that might not happen on outcomes that may not exist. It feels a lot less like a solid Brexit policy and more a creative writing exercise that's been given to a very, very dull five-year-old. While all their classmates have written about actual unicorns, this child has just made metaphorical ones based on trade deal proposals. It's very likely his parents will be called in for a chat with the teacher. Brexit has very much divided the nation and trying to unite people and somehow respect both sides' wishes is definitely applaudable. And it's one of those stances that the annals of history will look back on and maybe see as the most bridge-building and progressive of all the British political parties. However, it'll probably also preface the paragraph about and that's why no one voted Labour in the 2019, 2020 or 2021 elections. The notion of leadership in the UK still very much comes from history and fiction, whereby everyone wants someone bold, strong and preferably with a sword to be a surrogate parent figure and allow them to spare very little thought for everything going on because, hey, Strictly started up again and Annika Rice is on it, so she'll be able to run around in a jumpsuit trying to find clues as to who the other supposed celebrities are. Sadly for Jacobs, this doesn't give much hope for a wannabe leader who isn't really a wannabe leader, doesn't have a sword but only a large courgette, and would really like you to do some of the work towards our society's future if you don't really mind so much. General Secretary of Unite and large shrew Len McCluskey told the conference that we should not let anyone define or divide us as leavers or remainers. What defines us is that we are socialists. Right, and socialism means you want to tackle the elite bureaucracy of the EU, but also unite with all the workers in the European Union at the same time. So, really, it might just be best for your party that, uh, maybe rather than campaign, just hide for a while, and hopefully it'll all have blown over by Christmas 2050. After which, it might be time for a second referendum, finally. 
The new slogan for this year's Labour conference is People Over Privilege, which also works as they seem yet again far more focused on attacking each other rather than the Conservatives. Some events like to kick off with a big opening ceremony, and that was obviously the 2019 Labour Party conference's aim too, as they kicked off proceedings with a grand sacrifice of the deputy leader and sickly white Gok Wan tribute act Tom Watson, which then fell through, meaning that it ended up being a self-sacrifice instead, probably in order to appease the gods of media and Twitter. It makes sense that the NEC wanted to get rid of Watson in the same way you'd want to remove a thorn in your side in that it's uncomfortable, hinders everything and once you remove it from the larger body it's connected to you realise it's just an annoying little prick. Watson has been king of the saboteurs in Labour ever since his involvement in Falkirk in 2012 where he tried to crowbar his manager into being selected for the MP candidate as Unite signed up its members to join the local party without them knowing so that the union would get a bigger say. Still, it's nice to think that there was a point when Watson tried to ruin his own party without having to tell everyone about it first. With his recent criticism of Labour's neutral Brexit stance just one day after it was announced because Watson is too acidic to be neutral on anything and the party aware that if Jeremy Corbyn steps down then Tom is in line to be acting leader which would probably confuse him as to what stance to take if he couldn't insult the leader anymore and end up disbanding the party just so he could do all the interviews about how awful they were to let someone like himself be in charge when he's obviously a self-saboteur. But then why the NEC and Momentum decided to bring up that motion the very weekend that all eyes were pointed even sharper at the party than the dagger-like stares they usually get is completely beyond me. It's very impressive to look at the absolute chaos of the Conservative Party right now and somehow assume that the only way you'll get to number 10 is by displaying an even bigger sense of divide, as though politics is some sort of dance-off where, on your turn, you head into the ring and kick yourself violently to a beat faster and more viciously than your competitor. So Watson received a text message on Friday while he was in a Chinese restaurant saying he was being abolished, which, to be fair, is often what's happened to me in a Chinese restaurant, especially if there's a buffet. But by Saturday morning, after a hoo-ha by press and supporters of Watson within the party, the head of Momentum and a man who always looks like he's purchased a very cheap Amish fancy dress costume, John Landsman, had withdrawn the motion to scrap the deputy leader position. I was certain it would only take 30 minutes for Watson to then tell the press that Labour was stupid for not getting rid of him and that he now backed removing his own position before a general election. Instead, though, he said that Labour is a broad church, which is why, like the TV series, he thinks it's often about grief and media attention. Watson said what Labour needed was unity and then within 24 hours made a speech saying Landsman was the Lee Harvey Oswald of the party. Which is a very odd analogy as if Watson means that he's Kennedy then he should be dead right now as Oswald was and don't quote me on this I think I could be wrong fairly successful. Unless Watson doesn't see himself as JFK and instead he's just one of the bystanders watching the motorcade who shouted very loudly after the shooting that Oswald had done it all wrong and that he should have got arrested before firing the gun as that would have been more effective. Watson followed this by calling Landsman the hitman that missed, so not Oswald then, I guess, but let's be fair, Tom has also worked very hard on making sure there's less of him to target. Corbyn has now said the position of deputy leader should be reviewed, which I imagine Tom is delighted about and will try his best to get five stars. The Labour leader said of Tom Watson that he's done very well on media reform, online gambling and exposing the way sugar has a deleterious effect on our lives, which does seem like a really snarky way of saying, well done for losing weight, but you're still annoying. This fiasco and Corbyn's senior aide and a man who looks like he's about to release an album on his band camp, Andrew Fisher, has said that he'll quit by the end of the year, which he says is so he can see his family, but the time said is because he doesn't think Corbyn will win the next election. Fair play. I mean, makes sense not to bother with a proper Brexit stance then, does it? Why waste the time? But aside from this, Labour launched some very interesting policies, including scrapping prescription charges in England, which is obviously such a nutty, completely undoable and crazy money-draining idea, unlike in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, where this is already exactly what happens. There's a policy to move to a 32-hour working week, technically just four days, with no change in pay, which Labour say they'll aim to do within a decade. But I guess if there's only four days in a week, that means it'll happen in about two and a half years' time. They'd vowed to scrap Ofsted as they believe it only scores inadequate and needs to be replaced with a two-phase inspection system, so I guess that's stun then kill. Yeah, that was a Star Trek joke. Yeah, you're welcome. And the conference policy that's really upset the internet is that the party want to back the abolition of private schools, which is obviously an outrageous idea as that would mean all the rich children would have to mix with normal kids and therefore it'll be much harder to remove the empathy from them by the time they become prime minister. Several commentators have said that it's hypocritical of Labour to announce this as many of their top team went to private schools, including Corbyn. Thing is, they won't have decided that, that'll have been their parents' decision and having been through it, they'll know what they're like. 
If we're blaming MPs for choices that they make now that differ from what they did aged 11, then we should also do the opposite and very much praise Conservative MPs for still thinking exactly like they did as kids and trying their best to shut down schools as often as possible. By the time you hear this, the conference will likely also have voted on abolishing detention centres, which I think is a shame, because they could have just combined policies and moved all private school pupils to Yarl's Wood, where they'll be so private, absolutely no media attention would ever come their way. Prime Minister and sandbags kicked together by a sad horse, Boris Johnson, was confronted in a hospital by an angry dad with a sick child, which has probably happened to him loads before, but usually only because the dad has just found out the child is actually Johnson's. This time, though, the man told him that the NHS had been destroyed while he does a press opportunity, to which Boris replied that there's no press, despite there very obviously being cameras and press there, which is obvious and blatant lying. But also rubbish lying. I mean, at least try and say, there's no press, in an OB1 voice. Or say that they're actually robot people he's showing round on a diplomatic mission. Or if he's such a comic whiz, why not just slam the protester down with a heckle like, oh, the NHS is destroyed, is it? Like your mum. Oh, bam. Except instead he just flustered like a shredded wheat in a vacuum cleaner and lied. Luckily for him, the press focused on how the protester is a Labour activist rather than how it was lucky Boris was near to A&E when his pants went on fire. As we all know, you can only criticise the PM if you might vote for him or, you know, we're on Have I Got News For You when he's hosting. Not to trumpet the biased media line, but it's very clear that had it been a Tory activist confronting Corbyn, well, firstly he'd have shouted, we've destroyed the NHS, why haven't you? But also all the headlines would say, Corbyn has done a big fat lie and got pwned so hard they took him to one of the wards. Or, you know, if an upset Brexit voter had confronted Lib Dem leader and out-of-season shopping centre Santa's helper, Joe Swinson, then the headlines would have been, no news today, absolutely nothing of note has happened. Let's be fair, there is a chance that Boris is too stupid to know what the cameras were there for and assume that maybe they were fans of his instead of the press. Maybe no one really knows how to do their job and maybe this is all a dream and we all died in 2013. The rest of Boris's week involved another failed Jedi mind trick as the government told the Supreme Court that they have no jurisdiction over the prorogation of Parliament, even though that is literally what they're deciding if they do or not and it's their job to work that out. What they didn't need was someone who may have been conducting unlawful procedures to try and tell them. It'd be like running up to a building surveyor to shout, you can't build here, as they're trying to work out if they can and why you've got a hammock in the corner and a very grim-looking shit bucket. The Supreme Court will announce their decision on Tuesday morning, probably by the time you hear this, and the government have promised that they will abide by whatever the result is, even though loads of the proroguing has already happened. I mean, great work. Well, next time, why not just tell people they need to put out that bonfire that's now just a few smouldering sticks and a really depressed potato? It's looking likely that the ruling won't be in Johnson's favour, and I only hope that his home secretary and unpopular Picasso painting, Pretty Patel, is ready and waiting to make him feel terror. Though that can probably only really be done by just not paying him attention for more than two minutes. If the prorogation is not ruled unlawful, then Johnson and future Prime Ministers will be able to suspend Parliament willy-nilly whenever they can't be asked to do something, or just want to push things through, which is very scary, but on the other hand, this podcast will finally be able to go monthly. And yet again, this is another week where Johnson could also get the long arm of the law reaching around to grab him by the straw pubes on more than one occasion, as it's been revealed that he failed to declare a conflict of interest when giving privileged access and a ton of money to a tech entrepreneur who was a friend of his while he was London Mayor. On his flight to New York for the UN General Assembly, Boris refused to answer questions about funding his close friend six times, saying that he was just there to talk about what he's doing at the UN. Though to be fair, maybe he just didn't realise it was the press asking him and thought he was being bothered by an over-enthusiastic tourist. Meanwhile, the International Trade Secretary and congealed silly string Liz Truss apologised to the Court of Appeal after she accidentally sold weapons to Saudi Arabia twice after a pledge to not do that due to how they're ruining Yemen. I mean, how clumsy do you have to be to accidentally sell weapons to an authoritarian regime? We really need to bubble wrap Truss right now and, and pop a cycle helmet on her, but before you know it, she'll trip up and sell Trident to Kim Jong-un. The UK has submitted alternative ideas to the backstop to the EU in what's known as non-papers, probably because they had nothing on there that you'd usually bother to print or write as it's a total waste of tree life. The EU have dismissed all the ideas and said that it's a backward step, though if the UK government take many more of those, we'll end up sort of pre-referendum, so maybe that could work. On Friday, millions of people all around the world joined schoolchildren in striking to fight climate change. Education Secretary and skin wrapped round some wind-up teeth, Gavin Williamson, said children should be in school instead of protesting. Yeah, well you should be in Parliament instead of bunking off to cock up the future, you hypocritical twat. At the UN General Assembly, Greta Thunberg made a passionate speech telling world leaders that they are failing children and accused them of stealing her dreams and childhood with their empty words. 
Which really shows all those twee shops that dream catchers aren't worth it, as all you really need is an ignorant prime minister. And lastly, holiday firm Thomas Cook have collapsed, causing the loss of jobs for 22,000 staff worldwide and leaving 150,000 holidaymakers either stranded or without a trip. Johnson has said the government won't bail out the firm for £150 million because it's a moral hazard, which I guess is because the Conservatives' priorities of spending £1 billion on the DUP or £100 million on Get Ready for Brexit leaflets qualifies for funding as they're completely immoral ones. Canadian Prime Minister and flatliner Matthew McConaughey, Justin Trudeau, has rightly got in a lot of shit after photos emerged of him wearing blackface at a party in 2001 where he was supposedly dressed as Aladdin. Though there is some confusion about which Aladdin as it can't have been the Disney one or he'd have needed to make his face much lighter than it already is. Canadians go to the polls on October the 21st and Trudeau's chances have been pretty hampered by this along with two other photos of it as well and the PM stating that actually he doesn't know how many times he did it showing that he's even more racist as he insisted on blacking up and out on regular occasion. And leader of UKIP and onboard train poster for erectile dysfunction Richard Brain is refusing to turn up to his party conference on account of low ticket sales which is strange as I'd assumed he was all about letting in as few people as possible. Yeah, welcome back, Paul Paul Bruns. How goes you? I have been uh, I've been doing the kids' politics show. How does this politics thing work then? Uh, that I do with Tutton Spiller of Super Bowl politics fame. Um, and this past weekend, we were at the lovely arts depot, and at the end of it, a little girl came to ask us if Brexit will happen because, as her mum told us, she was terrified she'd have to leave her home if it did, uh, which is adorable and very sad as well. Especially as after we spoke, I reported it to the Home Office because you just can't be too safe nowadays, can you? You know what I mean? No, no, uh, we did actually reassure her that she should be fine but also use the word should because if we all know deal it could go like the purge and then no one's home will be safe really do you know what i mean yeah um we also had some adults ask us why their mp doesn't do the things that they were elected to do uh because their mp is in a remain constituency and is voting for all of boris's nonsense and let me tell you it requires a heroic level of restraint when asked such a question uh, to not shout because he's a piece of shit because you're aware that children are around and they may get scared that they'll have to leave their homes if you get all angry and being not partisan is very hard folks it's very hard play that tiny violin now please play it um, and that's it that's been my life this past week uh, lots of gigs lots of getting up at 5am because my daughter uh, insists that that isn't time to start her day now even though it's definitely still night how do you teach a kid that it's still night even more so in the winter when it's definitely night she just seems to think that it's a very dark morning it is horrific uh, but yeah lots of gigs and shows and things and 5am starts and actually all I really want to do is play Untitled Goose Game uh, which is unbelievably good if you're into that sort of thing and by that sort of thing I mean computer games and playing as a horrible goose um, it feels like very small revenge for climate change just being able to honk at villagers and break all their stuff um, I can almost see why Zeus went all swan for a bit almost I mean he went real creepy with it and this game is far more family friendly so it's not quite the same what am I what am I talking about 5am starts are absolutely crippling um, what I should be saying is thanks again for being here and a big thanks to Rob for the Kofi this week, which is appreciated. And should you also, like Rob, fancy buying me a coffee, you can, of course, do that. Or better still, go to the uh, Kofi.com, ko-fi.com forward slash bro, and then I'll buy the coffee, uh, but with your money, so you don't even have to go outside. And, I mean, it's basically winter now, so you should really stay indoors till March. Or go to the Patreon.com forward slash bro and buy me a coffee using dollars, just so I can really upset the people in my local Costa, trying to use them as they are. And if you can't, won't, or simply don't understand how to do that, then please review the show on one of the many reviewy podcast places like iTunes or your phone notes, and then find it in three years' time and have absolutely no idea what it means. Or please just tweet in that all about the podcast if you enjoy it, and then people online can ignore it in order to argue about private schools instead. Uh, the live gig is still very much happening, and I believe there are so many tickets that I might forgo the whole night just to give the audience a tour around some chairs. But seriously, it's October the 29th. Um, it'll be very much like this, but you know actually there and therefore unable to go out of date quite so quickly i promise not to talk about zeus's swan me too moment i promise um it's all at two north down in king's cross starts at 8 30 and tickets i believe are 10 pounds with a one pound booking fee just to be annoying uh, who makes an 11 pound ticket me it turns out i didn't realize um you can buy those at tickettext.co.uk uh, if you search for the podcast name or you can search for brexit z-o-m-g-w-t-f barbecue um right uh this is what happens when i've been up all of the day uh 
just rambling, rambling about swans and geese and general uh, things. On this week's show, I am speaking to former and now recurring podcast guest uh, Emma McClure, all about what the Supreme Court stuff means, but in language that I might understand. Plus, there is a little look at private schools, but only a little one, as they're private. I do think they should make the entrance of private schools like private shops. You know, the adult shops, like all frosted windows, etc. I mean, actually, it's a bit weird because it's a school, but it would put parents taking off their kids there, wouldn't it? I guess. Yeah, I should have stuck to the swan stuff, shouldn't I? Have some of this. The Supreme Court, the only court in the UK set up by a Motown group with the aim of judging whether or not defendants should stop in the name of love. No, sorry, what I mean is the Supreme Court is the final court of appeal in the UK. And then once a case has gone there, that's it. And even in the current day, there won't be a reboot or sequel that ignores the last few iterations like they haven't happened. Whether or not Boris Johnson's proroguing of Parliament is lawful is, at the time of the recording, being discussed by the Judicial Committee. And you should, by the time you hear this, if you're listening after Tuesday morning at 10.30, have found out if Johnson is in trouble for clearing out the office too early or not. And if he is, what will be done about it, considering a lot of proroguing time has already passed? So unless Parliament are recalled immediately to discuss time machine possibilities or deciding that September is an extra long month now, then it still won't change the fact that there's really not much time at all for MPs to discuss exactly which unfeasible Brexit option they dislike the most. The outcome is important, though, for determining whether any future Prime Minister will just be able to shut down Parliament for a year to their convenience, have a very long holiday and leave us all to work things out. And Oh, no, wait. I thought that sounded like a bad idea, but the more I think about it, if we just didn't see Boris Johnson and he didn't do anything at all till, say, 2022, I reckon we'd have a fairly nice time. But no, it's not a good thing. And more so, this is about the future of British politics, if it still has one before climate change kicks in and we all revert to barbarism. So, are the courts more powerful than Parliament, or is it the other way round, or neither, or somehow both in a big mishmash that can only be resolved by either a magic hat or some sort of jewel? Probably probably not the latter. But if you're like me, aka an idiot, you might be bewildered by all the legalese which Google Translate is really very little help on. And all of this is happening meanwhile the Prime Minister is promising to be tough on crime, which is an odd choice when he may end up being a guilty party. Either, like most things he does, he hasn't really thought it through, or he's really into masochism but in a very long drawn out way. We can only hope that Johnson decides to look into NHS reforms in the same way and ends up spending at least a few months in a coma. This week, I spoke to prison and public law solicitor Emma McClure. Emma was on this show way back on episode 37 discussing the depressing state of prisons, and she very kindly offered to come back on the show and explain just what all the Supreme Court debates and potential outcomes would mean, as well as giving us a catch-up on whether Boris's proposals for longer prison sentences are at all feasible in an already overcrowded and poorly managed prison system, or will it just lead to cells becoming like a very cruel human Tetris? So, even if you've heard the result by now, I hope this chat will clear up why it happened, what that result means, just what a mess our current prison system is, and how little I understood any of it until I spoke to Emma. Here you go. Okay, uh, Emma, we're speaking five minutes after the Supreme Court hearing about the prorogation of Parliament has finished. Um, I've been watching bits of it and trying to keep tabs with it. A lot of it has gone over my head as legal talk is not my thing. Um, Could you perhaps... I know we we haven't got the result yet and we probably listeners might have it by the time they hear this. Who knows? Um, could you maybe give a kind of summary of what's happened, what we might expect and I suppose why it was important? What, what have we learned from it? Yeah. So um, Lady Hale and um, the president of the Supreme Court said that we should we could expect the decision early next week. Um, so that's the time scale that she's working to at the moment. Um, in terms of what's going on. So this case is um, about whether or not Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. And so I need to go through some what all of that means, because uh, many people won't have heard the term prorogue until very recently or know what it is. So proroguing Parliament is just where Parliament is suspended um, for a period of time, uh, usually uh, for a Queen's speech, so that they can start a new legislative session and bring in a new raft of bills that they want to progress through parliament it's something that happens fairly regularly but normally only for a very short period of time much shorter than the current prorogation um the reason that this one is so controversial is because of the timing of it because of the massive big brexit thing in the background um and the looming deadline um, for no deal brexit and whilst the prime minister gave the reasons given by the prime minister for the proroguing are 
standard prorogation, he wants to bring in a new Queen's speech, etc. Um, the case being brought by Gina Miller is that the reason, that is not the real reason that he prorogued Parliament. The real reason that he prorogued Parliament, um, the Gina Miller case says, is that he wanted to stymie Parliament. He wanted to prevent Parliament from scrutinising his approach to Brexit and allow him to force through a no-deal Brexit if necessary. Now, we don't know for certain what his, while he's published motives about it being a standard prorogation, um, he hasn't actually for this court case submitted a witness statement, which would be normal in this sort of thing, to say exactly what his position is. So in there were two cases, obviously, there was the Scottish case, um, which he lost, and the English case, which um, he won initially. And that's why both of those cases have gone to the Supreme Court together. Um, and the only reason there was the Scottish case is because um, UK English courts rather don't normally sit at that time, which is why a case was brought in Scotland. Yes, because there were a lot of comments from the government, weren't they, saying that, you know, that it was politically biased because it was set in Scotland, which is a very Remainer. But the, the actual reason is just that in- English courts weren't, uh, weren't sitting at the time. They weren't sitting in they weren't sitting in August, so couldn't right. be brought. <laughs> right. um, so um, anyway, so there's a dispute about whether or not the um, there's a dispute as to the motives of the of the prime minister in relation to proroguing parliament. But an, another issue is whether or not the court can make a judgment on his motives at all, because the government's position is that. The decision to prorogue Parliament is called is something called non-justiciable, um, which means that it can't be um, examined by the courts. They say that it's a political decision to do with Parliament between the Prime Minister and Parliament, and isn't something the court should examine. Whereas the other side say that well, if it, it, the power to prorogue is a power that he can deal with, it's a political power, but if the reasons he's using it are unlawful then he should be able to be scrutinised by the courts. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's all That's all an awful lot clearer. So one thing to ask is, so they didn't submit a witness statement, or Bor- uh, either Boris Johnson didn't or the government didn't. Boris Why, Johnson didn't. Yeah. Boris, so Boris Johnson, it should have been submitted by the Prime Minister. And what is, because uh, am I right in thinking a witness statement is legally binding? Are there issues that, you know, if, if you submit it and it's deemed unlawful, does that put more onus on him? Or, you know, what what do you think the reasons are for not submitting one? I, I, I can't. I can't. I'm not in. I'm not in Boris Johnson's mind, um, so I can't say why he's, not, he's decided not to. But um, in it, can, I, I think that it can be inferred from some of the uh, rep, some of the press conferences that he he gave prior to the prorogation that he was explicit in saying that Parliament were trying to stop him from doing what he wanted to do. Um, and I think the part. I mean, part of the reason that a witness statement wasn't submitted is that if he was going to rely on his publicly given reasons for proroguing parliament, that that wouldn't be a true thing. And you, and it's witness statements to the court are supposed to be statements of truth. And when I, whenever I have to do witness statements or I have to get witness statements for my clients, there is a statement at the bottom of it confirming that it is the truth as best as you know it. And there can be legal sanctions if it's shown that you're lying in your witness statement. I mean, that's, that's very telling. Um, so I suppose the big question, uh, and again, listeners may already be ahead of us by by the time they hear this. Who knows? Um, the, the, at the end of uh, the, the hearing today, they mentioned that or one of the possibilities was that maybe there'll be a two part decision from the courts and that they'll sort of give a decision and then maybe an order, I guess, depending on whether the government follows through their decision or 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 not. And what what happens if it's I mean, what could happen if it's deemed unlawful? So um, there are many different. Um, the reason that there was quite a lot of discussion about that um, in the last sort of stages of the submissions there, and um, if anyone um, also uh, listened to it or, or, or watched it, and um, the reason for that is because this is some somewhat uncharted territory. The the court has never been asked to uh, answer this particular question before, um, and so we're not quite sure exactly what might happen. There's a few different things. If well. The government submitted rem- um, some suggestions as to what would happen if, so if it's deemed unlawful, if Boris Johnson's advice to the Queen is deemed unlawful, um, the, pri- the the government would still like to be able to continue to prorogue Parliament 
Um, I'm, I haven't quite read it all in detail, but that was what the submissions were today. I'm a bit confused about that. Um, or if it's deemed unlawful, then it could have the effect that the prorogation didn't happen, it's null and void, and then Parliament should reconvene. But there's lots of different technical things involved in that about exactly how it would come back, who brings it back and things like that. Um, I Obviously, the court could also come back and say they think that it's lawful and or that it's not a decision that they can even get involved in. They decide that they're not, um, that it's a political decision and they shouldn't make a judgment on it at all. Um, however, I think that's probably quite unlikely. I don't, I'm not a betting person. I wouldn't like to put money on it. But based on the amount of time that the court just spent talking about what to do if they decide it was unlawful would suggest that that's the way that they're leaning. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating that we could be having an un, uh, or have an unlawful government. And we've also got the possibility that Boris Johnson may break the law that was made in Parliament about not asking for an extension to Article 50. Um, if he, you know, it, could we see a situation where, where the, the Prime Minister is taken to court for for breaking the law potentially twice? Uh, would, would that be a, a, a possibility? I mean, potentially, yes, because the, um, again, in the submissions of uh, Lord Keane, um, who was um, there for the government, uh, they you refuse to be drawn on whether or not um, the Prime Minister could just go ahead and prorogue Parliament again immediately after this, even if, he's deemed, even if his actions are deemed unlawful, which is a bit concerning. Um, so it's... <laughs> I wish I could be more clear about this. It's all quite it's it's all quite up in the air at the moment um, as to as to what is going to happen. To be honest, I can't really give you a clearer answer on it at the moment. Um, it will be fascinating to see what the decision is. Yeah, I mean, as you said, this is completely uncharted territory. And the issue, another issue is so if the court go against um, the Gina Miller case and they say that um, Boris Johnson, it was entirely in Boris Johnson's power and right to, to prorogue Parliament as he has done for how long he has done, um, then. I would be very concerned about that as well, because then there's nothing to say that this prime minister or a different prime minister couldn't prorogue parliament for a year or for any or they could prorogue parliament just before a vote of no confidence in them that they think they're going to lose. And so very autocratic, scary sort of scenarios like that um, if Boris Johnson was to win this this case. So either way, it's going to be interesting slash scary. Which is something I wanted to ask you about, really, because, you know, we've got uh, the government is sort of making quite a few statements about wh whether they will or whether they won't, talking about, you know, just breaking the law on the Article 50 extension. And they, they've sort of made, despite then retracting that, they've kind of made comments about it. This this feels quite a sort of dangerous precedent that the government seems to think that they're above the law. Is that I mean, that must be quite concerning. It's very concerning because the idea is that we live we live in a parliamentary uh, parliamentary democracy where the idea is that parliament is sovereign um, and so that means that so parliament has ultimate control over most things that we we do we as the electorate vote them into power and then they have all the power most of the power I should say so if um, the if the prime minister who is part of the is part of the executive so there's three branches of government the executive um, parliament and the judiciary and if the executive is saying that they're going to do essentially do what they want and ignore parliament and it's parliament that's supposed to be sovereign then that's extremely concerning from a constitutional point of view right but this is i mean it's another area that i'm very confused on because so we've got constitutional and judicial law uh in the uk what is the difference between them and what what are we looking at with with this case this is constitutional law that we're looking at now so those so those two it, i'm going to confuse you even further now so part of the problem that we have in terms of explaining so part of the problem that we have in terms of explaining constitutional law in the uk is that we don't have a codified constitution so in america they have the constitution which is one document with a list of rules about how the government works and how it's run how it makes decisions it's very straightforward to know when you're talking about constitutional law somewhere like the US and most countries in the world. We So whilst it's, it is written down, our constitution, or most of it's written down, it's not in one place. It's a mishmash of different things, um, including some statutes and some, uh, and the common law. And common law is judge-made law, 
which is why I'm going to confuse you, because some judicial law, which is common law, is constitutional law. Um, and also some, some of our constitution isn't written down. A big part of our constitution is something called conventions, which are essentially just rules that everyone follows, and we followed them all for a long time. Um, but they're not actually explicitly written down anywhere. Like so, things like the fact the prime minister, who the prime minister is, or, or the or the fact the prime minister exists, is a convention. It's not written down anywhere, um, explicitly in any law or statute that the prime minister is the leader of the um, the party with the most with the majority in parliament. Um, it's just a convention that we all follow that the prime minister is the is the person who can command the um, confidence of parliament. So that usually ends up being the person who is in charge of the party with the most seats. But it's not who the, the role of prime minister is not explicitly written down anywhere. It says this is who the prime minister is. Isn't written down anywhere. We just all agreed on who the prime minister is. So because our so almost anyone else could turn up, and command the majority, and then be prime minister if, if they, if, so if they like, commanded the confidence of parliament. It could go almost yeah. anywhere else. So because our because our constitution is made up of all these different bits of rules and and, and judgments and conventions and statutes etc. Um, it's not quite. It's this is why it's a very confusing area of law. And normally it's quite boring, and so it's become quite exciting recently with all of this stuff that's going on but if your constitutional law is getting exciting it means that um you're having problems <laughs> and it's probably an argument why we why we perhaps should have a codified constitution written down in one place perhaps um so there is a big overlap between constitutional law and judicial law which i would judicial law is not really a, a term that's used the, the term would be common law which is judge-made law um but some judge-made law is also constitutional law for example and judgments in relation to uh, the interpretation of the human rights act um a lot uh, there's lots of cases that would be considered constitutional cases in that area right and this ruling that may that, that may be out uh, on the on the prorogation will that then be constitutional law i assume is it will then lead to how parliament could act in the future yeah yeah um certainly it would um because it would go a long way hopefully to interpreting um the the limits of the limits of um what this prorogation power are um in the future and i so if it's not apparent i am very much on the side of the idea that uh, boris johnson's um advice to pro parliament was unlawful i am on that side um and i would hope that if that happens and parliament reconvenes the first thing they do is uh, legislate to take that power away from him um so it doesn't happen again although not the first thing the first thing i'd like them to do is sort out brexit one way or another but well not one way or another i'm, I'm very much on one side but there's a lot to fit in in a very short amount of time, which is uh, is terrifying. As someone who regularly works to deadlines, I find that notion very scary. Um, I just wanted to ask, like, if, just from a sort of devil's advocate perspective, is, are there any arguments for not having a written constitution? Is there any benefits for the fact that we don't have, like America or elsewhere, one, one specific document? Yeah, I mean, it's not entirely useless. So we wouldn't have continued with it for such a long time. Um, part of the benefits of it are it is certainly more flexible um, if... Um, so when when things change over time and there's different uh, social norms and things like that, it's easier to um, to sort of for them to slowly change and stuff like that, rather than um, it being so in the US. It's very difficult to change the constitution in the US. Um, obviously, they, they go through that the amendment process, and it's significantly harder to change parts of the constitution uh, than it is to, to sort of to change parts of our constitution. So that's probably the main um, the main benefit to having it uncodified in that way. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we'll be back with Emma in a minute. But first, adding private to a term really changes what it means, doesn't it? I mean, if you ask someone if you can have a private conversation, everyone else in the office knows that either you're having an affair or one of you's about to get fired, or both at exactly the same time. A private dance is no longer someone sloppily gangnam styling it while drunk, but instead that same person sloppily gangnam styling it while drunk, but in your face and with no pants on. Similarly, private schools is a term that changes an institution that we know to be about access to education and learning into something where parents pay lots of money for their children to become socially inept. I mean, I am, of course, being flippant, but Labour's pledge to abolish private schools during their conference this week has caused outrage online, with many saying that a system where better education can be bought by those with wealth is needed, and the strain it would put on a normal school system to suddenly take in 615,000 pupils who will assume most of the other pupils are there to serve dinner or deliver something will be too much for it to cope with. Mainly because it's massively underfunded, while private schools avoid tax on their stupidly high-term fees because they have charity status, but you know, hey, who's being picky? But a good education should be free for everyone because, as Nelson Mandela said, it's the most powerful weapon with which you can use to change the world. I mean, I'd argue that a nuclear warhead is worse, but I suppose I did go to school and now I know that, so maybe he's right. If 93% of the country can't afford that weapon, then how will they have any hope of fighting for their future? Well, I suppose with a nuclear warhead, but I really wouldn't advise it. You should probably learn something about it first. Sure, it's obvious I'm biased here, as I went to a state school and I've turned out all right. So it's obvious that my friend's brother getting stabbed in our playground or one of my classmates getting done for armed robbery hasn't made any difference in my ability to earn very little money in later life. However, if I had gone to private school, which I couldn't have done because I wasn't rich or clever enough, but mostly the rich bit, then I could have been one of the 7% of the British population who did and could have now ended up with one of the 45% of the wealthiest and most prominent jobs. And I mean, that sounds fair, right? I mean, I've only got state school maths education, but 7% of the population to 45% of the very best jobs. I mean, I'm sure that, well, I'm sure if, with the maths that you learn in one of those schools, that all seems to make sense. 65% of all British judges are privately educated, 57% of the Lords, 43% of news reporters and even 44% of actors because nothing helps you portray a wide range of people like not having any access to them for most of your life. Boris Johnson is the 20th PM to come from just one private school, Eton, so named after the answer to the question, what did you do with all the underprivileged kids round here? Of course, some children from disadvantaged backgrounds do make it into private schools, but the figure amounts to just 1% of their overall intake, and average fees per year restrict most people from ever sending their children there, as £17,000 per term is over half the average national income. At the moment, the schooling system means children's education is mainly based on how much their parents earn rather than their ability. There's also a lot of evidence of more than usual levels of abuse cases, with 425 people at private schools accused of sexual attacks since 2012. That was only based on reports from half of the police forces in the UK, so the actual number is likely to be higher too. Last year, only 1 in 10 private schools met the national criteria for safeguarding, which is very low. But I suppose who needs safeguarding when you've got financial security and there's nothing easier than just paying things like that to go away, or at least pretend it's a character-building exercise for when their pupils end up in government. But is abolishing private schools the right thing to do? Couldn't we just demand that they only teach magic there and they can only be accessed by a train that runs from an imaginary platform? Well, firstly, abolition isn't about raising all these schools to the ground. It's about integrating them into the school system. So all the funds and property would be, as Labour say, redistributed fairly. At the moment, private schools don't contribute much to the economy at all. I mean, over half of British private schools have charitable status, which means they don't pay full business rates. Unlike state schools, many of whom could do with those tax breaks so they didn't have to ask parents to contribute towards buying pencils or closing early on a Friday like many schools in Birmingham have to due to cuts. 
Changing this would bring an extra £105 million into the economy and putting VAT on private school fees would bring in £1.5 billion. So if these schools were redistributed, then all the land, space and funds could go towards a better education for all kids. Now, yes, I hear some of you saying you can't just do that. Oh, no, sorry, that's the person whose sandwich I've just stolen. And yes, I can and I have, and it was very tasty. But there are as yet unanswered questions as to how big class sizes would become in state schools as a result of this. Special needs provisions would be lacking even more so than they already are. And a whole load of private school teachers probably wouldn't just go and work in the state sector where there's already a massive lack of teachers. Though, again, if they knew magic they can do a doubling charm on themselves and then that would fix everything i'm just saying people it's really worth a think finland abolished private schools in the 70s and now only has accessible state schools where all pupils go and they are currently tied with denmark australia and new zealand as having the best education system in the world according to the un's education index Sure, there's a lot less people in Finland and playtimes are so cold that they kind of have to make the schooling good as lessons in catching pneumonia while playing tag wouldn't really cut it. They also haven't had a state school system though that's been decimated and reduced to test-based nonsense over the last nine years. But it does show that it can be done and while I'm certain the abolition of private schools won't actually happen, it does mean the conversation about why the UK still has socially exclusive schools is now happening and maybe something will change which would genuinely be magic for the future of education. Or, if nothing else, I have to start saving up to buy my daughter a wand and get her practicing on making a ghost stag appear ASAP. And now, back to Emma to ask all about Boris being tough on crime, but harder on our eyes. I wanted to ask you some more specific questions, really, because obviously you deal with prison and public law, and there's been quite a lot in the news uh, lately um, of Boris Johnson's pledges, whether or not they'll happen, whether or not he'll be in office long enough. Um, but he's he's got this whole tougher on crime stance, and he's calling for longer sentencing for criminals. Um, now, we spoke about three years ago, and back then you were talking about how overcrowded prisons were, all the problems in the prison system... Um, is this longer sentencing advisable and, and would, the, would the prison system cope if that happened? So on the first point um, with uh, what Boris Johnson was saying, um, where he wanted to make tougher sentences uh, for serious criminals, is that it was following a long line of times when he has um, made pronouncements on the law and, and, and the sentencing of criminals that's completely wrong it's, and sort of fractally wrong um, and any sort of minor scrutiny of it reveals that he's at, he's talking from, from the point of view of someone who knows the area is talking nonsense hey, so what a the, surprise. <laughs> quite frankly so the most recent thing was where so he was talking about um the idea that he was going to make it the law that people who kill preschool children would get whole life tariffs um as sentences now um the reason that that's wrong is that first of all um, that is already the starting point for if you murder a child, because obviously murdering a child is a very serious offence. Um, and secondly, um, if you then, if you, but if you make a blanket rule that anyone who kills someone under the age of five gets a whole life tariff, it then it takes a, it, it loses. It's difficult to talk about nuance when talking about killing children, but I'd like to try if I may. So, you unfortunately. The most common reasons that people kill children of that age are for extremely unpleasant motivations of sadistic sexual motivation. And if that's the motivation, you're getting a whole life tariff, hands down, no question, absolutely, you're going to go away forever already without changing the rules. And otherwise, in terms of um, killing children, other kind of cases that would fall into that area are things like shaking babies. Now, this may this is obviously this is a personal opinion of mine, but I don't feel that someone who, in a moment of madness, you know, losing their temper, who kills a child in that way, should spend their entire life in prison. I mean, that's that's my opinion. I don't think that's I don't think that's useful to society. I think that person can be rehabilitated. Um, but the way that Boris Johnson was talking, he was suggesting that anyone who kills anyone under the age of five, whole life tariff, no question. And also. What about five-year-olds? Because it was a strangely arbitrary line that he was going to change the law for people under the age of five. And then in terms of what he was saying about um, ending the policy of prisoners being released at the halfway point for serious and violent sexual offences, uh, the first thing to point out is that in all of that reporting, he was suggesting that these were policies uh, from... The, the problem was that 
the say previous Labour government hadn't been harsh enough um, on 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 these sorts of offenders. When first of all, the idea of um, releasing people at the halfway point of their sentences uh, came in in 1991 um, under a Conservative government. Um, and when I say release the halfway, people, but people who get released at the halfway point of their sentence, I need to highlight, are still on license for the second half of that sentence. So if they breach any of the terms of their license, they are going back to prison. They are not. They're not off free halfway. Um, I need to highlight that. Oh, that's a common misconception um, from people. And then, if he is to change the policy to that, that people who commit serious sexual and violent offences are going to be spending um, significantly longer in custody. Um, he's going to need. So they've announced they're going to build ten thousand new. They're in the middle of building ten thousand new prison places at the moment. They're going to need them because uh, we're already overcrowded, and uh, changing the policy in that way is going to massively increase uh, the prison population, um, which I think is not a good idea. Because um, I listened back to the last time I was on this show back in twenty sixteen, the heady days of before President Trump, um, and. Uh, <laughs> Things were bad then, and they are no better, if not worse, now in terms of the state of the prison system. So um, I just uh, do not think it's going to help. I think I saw in the news the other day, the governor of uh, HMP Winchester said that just um, it's a fantasy to believe that you can rehabilitate anybody in our in our current prison uh, system. So, uh, and I think um, to highlight that point, if anyone hasn't seen the program on channel four that was on monday last monday at time of recording called crime and punishment um that shows um some of the issues and challenges of trying to rehabilitate uh prisoners i think it's a very good program that people should watch is is there do you think uh, a problem is uh, a lack of you know is boris boris's line has all been tough on crime and, and you know pretty tells me talking about making criminals feel terror or whatever and is uh you know is that the line that the public want to hear you know should we be trying to change the narrative to say rehabilitation is really what's necessary you know i, I look at sort of uh especially like the scandinavian countries always with their high quality of life and their huge amount of rehabilitation and we don't seem to be doing any of that here and i guess as you said some of that's doing the fact the prisons are, are horrific but is there is there no want for it either well i'm not sure about that because um, in the reporting about Boris Johnson's most recent um, announcements on sentencing, he says that the public are telling them, um, the public have been screaming that Parliament aren't doing what we what what we want, so we're going to do what what the public want. Um, but I'm not sure I've seen any evidence for that. I mean, I do know that um, in, amongst the general population, there is um, there is an idea of, of tough on crime is a good idea, um, which I would disagree with, and I think there needs to be. Um, in an ideal world, I would spend quite a lot of time and resources in trying to <laughs> educate people in relation to that. Because I understand that, especially if you're not out committing crimes, that if you, you can look at people who do robberies or burglaries or serious violence and think, well, they need to be punished for that. We need to punish them for that um, and stop them doing it. Um, but we know from sort of <laughs> annals of history and all human behaviour that simply punishing people for that doesn't doesn't work and also it doesn't take into account the complex backgrounds of most of the people um who find themselves in custody and if we want to make society better and we want to reduce crime then we need to actually do things that reduce crime and uh, punishing people just put locking someone locking a serial burglar in custody who's got a substance misuse problem for six months and then releasing them out into the community again or you know or really harshly locking them up for 10 years and then releasing them again um, to be homeless um, isn't doesn't stop people from committing crimes um, and I think we would do well to look very carefully at how Scandinavian countries deal with rehabilitation unfortunately I fear uh, the current political climate and given that the government has been doing nothing I, I, I mentioned this in 20 in our interview in 2016 the fact the government is doing nothing but Brexit for, and at that point, it was about six or seven months, and now it's three and a half years. <laughs> um, there isn't a lot of there isn't a lot of political appetite to actually do anything. And the current um, justice minister, Priti Patel, um, is although she denied this the other day, but it's on video, so I'm not sure why she 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 thought she could deny it. Uh, it's this new realm of of uh, politicians just lying in front of cameras. Um, 
that she's a proponent of the death penalty. She thinks the death penalty is a positive thing. And I think that's sort of indicative of, of the current uh, political climate, unfortunately. Just uh, just to uh, correct, because uh, Priti Patel's Home Secretary and Richard Heaton is Justice Secretary, who no one seems to have heard of. But I think there's something that you point out in your email to me. Justice Secretary seemed to change every year <laughs> and have we've had sort of four since we last spoke. Yeah, it's not seen... It's not seen as a yeah. It's not seen as a particularly prestigious appointment, and none of them take it seriously. So, I mean, that's not fair. That's not fair. Dave, David Gork, who was, I think, the last one. Yeah, I try and remember. He was making some very. He was making some very good noises. Um, again, I I think I mentioned last time Michael Gove. He was making decent noises when he was briefly in that job, um, but um, David Gork's now one of the people that got deselected from the Conservative Party. Yeah, and I think I remember that Michael Gove mainly spent his time undoing everything Chris Grayling had done uh, when he was Justice Secretary, which is, uh, yeah. So speaking of which, one of the things that Chris Grayling did do was was privatise uh, the probation service. Um, and now we've seen uh, just before the summer that the probation service was failing so much that they're having to at least part renationalise it again. Um I'm guessing that that's a good thing in terms of how badly it was doing before. But then is that upheaval of the system going to be good? Is that going to cause chaos in a system that's already struggling? Oh, you know, what's what are the details about it? Yeah, so um, the after some research indicated that um, the part privatisation of the probation service was, quote, an unmitigated disaster. So what happened was that the um, part of the probation service, the part um, that managed medium or low risk offenders, um, was transferred to about 21 uh, community rehabilitation companies or CRCs. Um, and then the high risk offenders were retained by um, the national probation service, the public part of the probation service. But the that was the reason it was an unmitigated disaster is that it, put, it fragmented the service uh, massively for a start. and um, because of that, and a large, a much larger number of offenders were were now subject to supervision by the probation service. Is that everyone involved is very overstretched and no one's talking to each other properly, and it led to um, lots and lots of issues. And I saw um, in some of the research, I think a third, thirty six percent of the probation officers that were interviewed for the research admitted that they regularly cut corners in relation to their in, in relation to supervising the offenders in the community. Um, which when you bear in mind that their job is to manage the risk of that offender in the community, it could lead to very serious consequences. And um, another thing that's happened is that because all of the probation officers are, I've got too much work on or overstretched and things like that, is that um, people, rather than managing people properly, seeing them regularly, having proper chats with them, identifying if there are perhaps some developing issues that need some extra support um, because none of that was happening properly is that people um, with difficulties and complex needs would reach a crisis point of some kind and end up being recalled to prison um, rather than um, with a bit of intervention they perhaps could have been retained in the community and recall is um, obviously recall to prison is obviously devastating for the person in question um, because it means they're back in prison and they could be back in prison for a very long time because of inherent delays and issues in the prison system and the parole system. And it's costly and, and an issue for the public in general because um, you have to then pay for that person to be in prison for that length of time um, when with a competent probation service, they could have been kept more productively in the community. And so um, at least I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that the government have at least accepted that it was a mistake. Uh, another, I think the last great mistake of Chris Grayling has now been overturned um, and they are going to um, bring it all back under the National Probation Service. And whilst that might cause a little bit more of an initial upheaval, I think that is much better, uh, much better moving forward, hopefully. Just, um, I mean, I love that last great mistake, Chris Grayling, but just in that job, there's so many more in all his other roles <laughs> that still got to be overturned. Um, constant failure, that man. Um, just, just out of interest, I mean, um, you know, we talked about because obviously with with the probation system failing, reoffending rates are, are very high, and as we talked about, rehabilitation is not really a, a thing in the UK. What what could be put in place to kind of help rehabilitation? What should I mean? These super prisons. Uh, apart from sounding slightly cheaper to keep someone there than other prisons, what, what you know, is there any benefits to them? Do you think that's the right way to go? No. Well, I'm um, in my in my imagined utopia. Um, I 
don't I think I think prisons I think I'm an abolitionist I think prison doesn't work in any way shape or form I would get rid of them completely um which is a conversation for another time but accepting that at the moment I have to ha- keep them if only because they're currently housing 85,000 people um <laughs> the big mega prisons I think are a bad idea so at the moment um there is one mega it's a mega prison that's open um near Wrexham called HMP Berwyn, which opened a few years ago. Um, and that, I think, demonstrates that this isn't necessarily the way to go. That prison isn't st- still isn't full. It's supposed to house 2,500 uh, men. Um, still not full and is already got endemic levels of substance misuse, violence, self-harm, etc. Um, and it's it's not, and it's it's running with a full complement of staff and isn't full yet. Um, which then should tell you how bad the other prisons are, which are running with a full com- and more than twice the number of prisons they're supposed to have and the staff. And other issue is, and we talked about this in 2016, is that while um, whilst the government have pledged to increase the number of staff um, or, or re- replace a small amount of the staff that have been lost due to austerity cuts, um, what's happening is that they're still hemorrhaging and what they're losing is the experienced staff. Um, there are um, a significant proportion of prison staff at the moment have very little experience. Oh yeah, so um, about um, there's about half a dozen prisons in the UK where half of the staff have less than a year's experience. Which, when you've got prisoners who are there for years and years and years, and you've got these <laughs> fresh-faced um, and entirely well-meaning, I don't wish to disparage them brand new officers turn up on a wing that's in chaos um they don't last long anecdotally from from prisoners and people that i've spoken to they don't last very long at all um and what what would help is massively reducing the prison population remove but in order to do that unfortunately i also need a properly functioning probation service to manage them <laughs> which we also don't have um so it's all um messes on messes on messes unfortunately at the moment Yes, it sounds. It sounds. I suppose one uh, definite. Uh, I think one definite positive of if Boris is, uh, you know, the, he ends up going to prison. For example, he may then understand the system better and actually do some positive changes. Um, you never know. Um, so, uh, last question. As I, I remember, I asked you this in twenty sixteen, but uh, perhaps an updated version uh, if you've got it. Um, apart from yourself, obviously, um, who should listeners follow and uh, check out or read, or what campaign should they go to? Who is who is giving good advice on uh, the legal system and good information on it? right now so um my information might be slight somewhat out of date because i do tend to avoid twitter for my own mental health but there are there are plenty of really good legal commentators there yeah, there are lots of very good legal commentators on twitter um that that it's, it's become an increasing um profession's not the right word i don't think anyone's getting paid to be a twitter legal pundit but it's a bigger world than it was back in back in 2016 so there's people like um the secret barrister um who's very good in terms of uh, and because anonymous um quite candid in relation to a lot of uh, the things they talk about there's um adam wagner um who uh, runs a human rights uh, podcast and blog um it's very interesting and then there's uh someone called uh, joanna hardy she's a barrister um again very uh, very useful commentary um there's loads and loads and loads of them actually one thing that i would want to plug about um campaigns and things for people if they're interested is um campaigning on i don't think there's a particular campaign group but there are um people talking about it is people campaigning for the ipp sentence um which is an indeterminate sentence for public protection um which was a sentence that was given out between 2005 and 2012 um to serious violent offenders i think i talked about it um in 2016 but um i would encourage people to become more aware of that sentence because there's these poor men who are stuck in custody uh for offenses that aren't which were serious which were serious and they deserve to serve time for but they're sent but they're they're convictions that people these days are getting sentences of say five years and getting out on license at two and a half and i've got clients who have done at this point 13 years for the same thing and they've got no end date i would you know there's nothing specific i would want to plug apart from everything that i said unfortunately almost everything i said in 2016 is still an issue if not worse 
Thanks so much to Emma for that chat. Uh, as you heard, she's taking a break from Twitter. So if you'd like to hear more from her, she's a regular contributor to the Skeptics with a K podcast, which I highly recommend you check out. And she'll also be on the US legal podcast opening arguments very soon, too. All the other links and people that Emma recommends will be on the partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk website very, very soon. What do you want me to speak to people about? Um, I'm aware there's several areas I've never covered on this podcast, such as uh, defence stuff, sex work, the private school arguments, and uh, a ton of world politics. But there's also stuff that probably really needs me to do an update on, uh, like the NHS education and more, even though nothing has actually happened anywhere because of Brexit barging in the way of everything, like, well, Boris Johnson in his everyday life. It's incredible that we have a Prime Minister who so perfectly emulates Brexit just in his being. You know, in the way, divisive, but not as popular as he thinks. And a mess that absolutely no one can work out. Sorry, what I mean is, what, what do you want me to get on this show? Uh, let's democratic process the shit out of the guest bit and get in touch and tell me who to get on or what to get interviewees about. And you can do that via the contact page on the website, the at Bro Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com with the subject line telling me exactly what you can abolish in a Chinese restaurant on a Friday night. <laughs> Stick a fork in this podcast as this episode of the Partly Political Broadcast is done. Thank you for still listening to this show, even though it now regularly goes out of date quicker than the contents of the bottom of my fridge, even though I swear I bought that salad five minutes ago, and yet somehow it now looks like a bag of sick polar bears. If you do enjoy the show, please review it, especially on the iTunes with a fat five-star write-up of joy, and perhaps even donate to the show via the Kofi or Patreon to fuel the caffeine that makes this show possible. Most of all, though, please just tell everyone you know to listen to this podcast, even if they don't have any time left in their life to do so, or have no listening skills, or just hate noises. Perhaps they'll make an exception for my stupid, stupid voice. I mean, they won't, but it's always nice to check, isn't it? Thanks, as always, to Acast, my brother, the last sceptic, and Cat Day, without whom this show would happen, but it would be decidedly shitter, and it would probably just sit on my computer, only ever played to my daughter, who would mostly try to eat it. Um, thank you also uh, this week to Chris Taswell from Twitter for a uh, heads up on one of the gags that you hear in the intro. Um, this will be back next week, when Labour announced their new Brexit policy as having a referendum on having an election, followed by a referendum, which they'll then have a referendum about, but only after they hear the correct signal in the wind or through a seashell during a full moon. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Bojo's Book of Mind Control. All the tricks to making everyone's brains merely putty in your squidgy pig hands. Worried they'll see something? With this book, you'll be able to persuade them that they aren't seeing it simply by saying it isn't there. Other tricks include not answering questions for so long people get bored and go away, and the magic of non-papers, like paper but with nothing actually there so you can pretend you've done something. Bojo's Book of Mind Control, when brainwashing doesn't work because it's your head that's full of shit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.